You know, it is so wonderful to be able to celebrate together like that. There's something that's just really powerful, not only about praising the Lord, but doing it with other people who are praising the same Lord. So I just want to thank you for being a part of that, being here, being in this service, celebrating this table together. You know, it's interesting that we talk about joy, we talk about celebration, and the passage that we're looking at this morning in the book of Luke, it comes out of Luke chapter 10, and in verse 17, there's this word about joy. Now, joy is something that probably all of us want, right? Anybody here not want joy? Now, now maybe you've met people that when you talk to them, you think, they must not like joy because I never see it come out of them. But then there's other people that you feel like they are joyful all the time. And you wonder, where does that come from? How do they maintain that? And, and it's like personality difference or something. Well, my father-in-law, my father-in-law Tim, is one of these people who, I, I'm telling you, he's just joyful all the time. And he's got this level of joy that you, you can't be around him without it being contagious, without picking up on it. And it's, it's the kind of thing where you always have fun with Tim. He is the life of every party, even when there's not a party. <laughs> you know, stuff like watching America's Funniest Home Videos as a kid, never thought it was that funny. Watch it with Tim. I've never seen something as funny as this. You know, and I think some of that is a personality thing. You know, that, you know, there's this sanguine personality that just enjoys life, you know. But I've also known him long enough, 10 to 15 years now, that I've seen times where life is not funny. There's nothing to laugh at. And even through tears, through difficult circumstances, things that have happened in his life that we would put in the category of, I hope that doesn't happen in my life. And yet he still has this joy. And maybe you know somebody like that. And when you see that person, there's, there's something in us that wants to know, is that real? Is that genuine? You know, are, are they faking that just to try to get through this thing? Or is there something deeper going on there that can bring that kind of joy that transcends circumstances? That transcends personality types. In our passage today, that's the kind of joy that Jesus is going to tell us about. A kind of joy that goes beyond all of those things. A kind of joy that allows us to discover how to rejoice like your life depends on it. To rejoice like your life depends on it. You know, some people will talk about how that word rejoice really has almost two ideas in it. Re-joy. Right? There's moments where it's just a feeling like life is good and I just feel so happy and the sun is shining and, and I'm joyful too. But there's other times where those pieces slip away and how do you get that joy back? How do you return to joy? How do you rejoice? That's what Jesus wants to show us. Because there's this idea that what my life depends on what I think my life is all about, where is that center? Because that's where I'm going to try to find joy. So look at what happens in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Remember now, Jesus had sent out 70 disciples. He'd given them a mission to do, to teach, to heal. He told them they were going to be like lambs among wolves in our last passage. Oh, great. Th thank you so much. We're so excited to go, right? 
But now watch what happens, because in verse 17, they finished doing the work that he asked them to do. Now they come back to Jesus to report to him how it went. And it says, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. All right, that's got to feel good, right? Because he warned them that people might reject you. He warned them that things might get ugly. He warned them that they are like lambs among wolves. But now they come back and they get to say, it worked. We had ministry success. We did the thing you asked us to do and it worked. And now they get to come back to Jesus and they make kind of this special point about this, this thing with the demons that of all the things that have happened, it, the teaching, the healing, whatever else it is, people turning their hearts toward God, the thing that was just like, wow, was that even demons were subject to them. You can imagine from back in chapter 9, when Jesus came down the mountain, found them in the valley, and faced disciples who had been unable to cast out a demon. He called them faithless and perverse. Boy, there's got to be some joy behind this one then. Like, Lord, we didn't mess it up this time. It worked. We trusted you and it worked. And here's why they make this point. Because they say, in your name. See, that's a big part of how we can rejoice, like our life depends on it, is when we rejoice that Jesus gets the credit. That's significant. Because it's not about the 70. It's not about their legacy, their names. Ultimately, it's about the name of Jesus. Right? It's the things that they had done that worked, not because they'd figured it out, they knew how to do it, and they didn't need Jesus anymore, but because they went out in his name. And so they rejoice that Jesus gets the credit and they return with joy to report this to him. It's, so it's interesting how this passage starts with what they think about his name. Because recently he had asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he asked them directly, who do you say that I am? As we search for joy, that's a question that we have to ask. What do you say about Jesus' name? Who is he? And who is he to you? They knew the answer to that question, and they brought that back with joy. But then there's kind of this interesting response from Jesus in verse 18. Because they say even the demons are subject to us. And if, when you look at what Jesus says, I, I don't know exactly how he said this. I'll, I'll admit that. But I wonder. I wonder if there's almost this moment like, demons, huh? Want to talk about demons? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's another level, isn't it? Jesus is saying, if you want to talk about the spiritual warfare, you want to talk about the battle that we are in, you've seen demons subject to you. I saw Satan himself from a place of glory fall in pride from his place like lightning flashes from heaven. He goes on to say, and behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. It's almost as if he's saying, lest we forget that you are standing before God himself. And there's important things that are in this statement that Jesus makes. Because what he says to them, I saw Satan 
fall. Jesus is not talking about a myth or a legend. This isn't a metaphor for like the struggles of life and how sometimes we do good and sometimes we do bad and there's an angel on this shoulder and a devil on this one. Jesus is talking about a historical event. He's using an active past tense verb with a continuing action. Meaning, Jesus was there. Jesus is saying, I remember this because I saw it happen. When Satan was cast out from heaven, when his fall began. And yet there's also something that he is saying to his disciples. Because if the action is continuing, what that means is, when they go out and do the ministry of Christ in Christ's name, Satan continues to fall. That the kingdom of Satan is falling as the kingdom of Jesus is rising up. So Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This next part is is a little bit strange. He says, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Okay, so... Uh, We're going to do that after this service. So if you just meet out in the lobby, we have a sign-up for serpent and scorpion trampling. Show of hands, just real quick, how many of you think you'll be there? Good, got one. (laughs) Okay, so what is he talking about? Now, there's, first of all, his authority. That matters. Because the authority is not in us, it is in him, and he is giving it to them. That's why they're seeing this success. In fact... One of the things that commentators believe is happening here is there may have been something of a physical element to this, but often we see that serpents and scorpions, that kind of language is used like a metaphor for the ferocity of the enemy in his attacks. And certainly we know, even as he tells them, nothing shall by any means hurt you, that can't be entirely in the realm of the physical because most of these people ended up being martyred for what they believed and for following Jesus and teaching his kingdom. And so the sense is that this is probably more in the spiritual realm. Because here's the reality. There are things that we celebrate, things that go well, ministry that brings us joy, seeing God at work, seeing his kingdom expand. But make no mistake about it. There is a battle going on. And there is an enemy. And he is ferocious. This is why it was so important for Jesus that he spent time with these men as their personal trainer. You know, he has almost this this method that, you know, he never writes down, it never becomes a checklist, he never puts it in binders and hands it out at a training session. And yet, as you watch Jesus with his followers, time and time again, he's walking them through this same rhythm. Bill Hull has tried to capture this uh, in a couple of his books. One is called The Disciple-Making Pastor. Uh, One is called The Disciple-Making Church. And there's a lot of explanation that can go into it, but the method itself actually ends up looking pretty familiar and is one of those places where we discover that it's not just a good idea, it's God's idea. He did it this way. Because when he was making disciples, because he knew how strong this battle was, he would start by telling them what? What to do? How do we advance the kingdom? Give me the basics. But he would always tell them why. He never sent them out without vision. You know, and so many times it's, it's easy for us as leaders to say, I know what needs to get done. Here it is. Go do it and let me know how it goes. But Jesus didn't do it that way. He would tell them what needs to get done, but he would tell them why it's so important. How there are a lot of things, guys, that we could do for the next few years, but 
this is our mission and we've got to do these things. Then he would show them how to do it. They've seen him heal. They've seen him teach. They've seen him cast out demons. He would do it with them. You know, you think of something like the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus breaks the bread, breaks the fish, but he doesn't pass it out himself. He involves them. He hands it to his disciples and say, pass this out to the people. You know, be a part of this ministry. Then he lets them do it. And that's kind of the moment that we're in in this passage. That he has spent all this time with them, and now he's sending them out. They report back because he knows a day is coming when he will deploy them. Because he's returning to heaven, and they need to know how to keep advancing the kingdom with his authority and in his name, even once he's gone. And even then, he says, I'll send you my spirit. Right? Even then, it's not in us, it's from him. You know, I, I, I love this model, and I'll admit to you, I shortcut this thing all the time. Like, there's always that thing that's telling you, yeah, but we're running out of time. We don't actually have time to do it this way. Listen, in the passages we're in, we are getting closer to the cross every single day. Every week that we gather in this room and we look at the next passage and we turn the next page, and Jesus knows that. You know, he started hinting at that to his disciples. Betrayal, death, what is he talking about? He knows that time is short and the mission is critical, and yet he never skips this. He has spent years with these men, with these women, with the people that trust him, developing them. It's one of the things that takes longer, but it's worth it because it works, and it's one of the things that I love here at Horizon, and because we, we really try to follow this, to follow Jesus' example in how we make disciples. And one of the things that was really interesting for me when I first came on the team here and I'll just, I'll, it might sound strange, but I'll just tell you I love this. Because I came from a church where I had been in charge of study groups. And so I know how to lead study groups. I know how to train study group leaders. And I come here, and the first study group that uh, I was a part of, you know what I did? Sit there. Just a, just a member of the group. Just get to know people. Then the second group that I was in, I did the same thing. Just, to, I mean, just the blessing that I felt from my leaders, from my mentors to say, join us, get to know us, learn, is so valuable. Because then by the third group, still didn't lead, but I led with, you know, a partnership with somebody else that we could work together so that after that, now it's sort of like this 70, we're going out two by twos, leading groups together. And see, what happens then is, the ideal is, for Jesus' followers, they spend three years just really digging deep on this stuff, and 12 guys could say, this is our group, and we never want to be apart, because you guys are awesome, and we've been through stuff together, except that Jesus knows they need to be deployed. Right? This was always part of his picture, was that 12 guys can become 70 can become hundreds, can become thousands, can become thousands of years later because then we multiply that way. That's a picture of what we might think of as ministry success. Now, is that where our joy comes from? Well, as Jesus talked about seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven... 
I think he's trying to give us a little more of an eternal perspective than just this one ministry trip they had just gone on. And in fact, that story appears in more places in Scripture. This is not the only mention of it. In Isaiah chapter 14, an Old Testament prophet tells us this same story. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Not only in an Old Testament prophet, but also in a New Testament prophet. In the book of Revelation, John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends when he lived on earth, wrote this about the war that broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, and here's this word again, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. I think some of what Jesus is putting here is a warning against pride. He's demonstrating his authority. He's demonstrating his godhood. He's reminding his followers that the things that they see going on around them are just a shadow of how big this battle really is. But I think there's also a reminder here Because it would be easy for them to come back and say, we did it, right? But everything we read in scripture is that the significant part of Satan's fall was that he had beauty. I mean, he was in heaven, an angel of the Lord Almighty who rebelled against God in pride, who put the center focus on himself. And so this is something, this is a warning for his disciples, but this is for us too. When we think about our joy, when we think about what it means to rejoice like our lives depend on it, what do our lives depend on? What is it that we think, what is it that you think? If just this could happen, if only this would go well, then I could relax. Then I could be joyful. It begs that question, how do we measure success? Is success that I make more money than this person? Or that my company does better than this company? Is success that I have just a little bit bigger house or a little bit more stuff or a little bit better reputation with the people around me? Or maybe it's just that I would do better this year than I did last year because then at least I could say I'm improving and being successful. See, the problem is if those are what our joy depends on, if that's what our life depends on, all of those things can slip away. And then our joy slips with them. And that's true even for ministry. That's true even for way that that you and I serve together, that we volunteer, that we come to this place and we call it Horizon and we say, we want this to be a place where God's kingdom advances, where the name of King Jesus is known. And that's true. And that's worth celebrating. But more groups, more giving, more people volunteering, more time. Is that ultimately our joy? That we would step back and say, 15 groups, praise the Lord. 30 groups, praise the Lord. 100 groups, whatever it is. Well, 
Why not? Well, it's not that we don't celebrate them, but watch this, because Jesus wants to take them one level deeper. It's almost as if, as he describes Satan, he's looking into the distance, remembering this moment, but now his eyes come back to his disciples, and he's seen the joy they've had in their ministry success, and he wants to bring the heart right back home. And so in verse 20, Jesus tells them this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You see, what he's saying is not that the things that had happened weren't good or weren't worth celebrating. I mean, he asked them to do them. He said, go do these things. Go minister this way. This is how the kingdom will advance. That's good. But the part that's worth celebrating, the part that brings the deepest joy is when names are written in heaven. When your name is written in heaven. You see, this is the joy that extends beyond circumstances, beyond personality types, that transcends all of that. And for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, who bring our sins to him and say, Lord, I I know that the things I've done wrong are even worse than I realize they are. And the things I think I've done well are not as good as I probably think they are. And so I come to you humbly and say, I trust you, Jesus, as the one who forgives me. Then he says, we have joy. Because our life does not depend on our ability to have success. Our life, our eternal life, is in him. And then our names are written in heaven. So we rejoice more in what God has done for us than in what we have done for God. That's a line I got literally word for word that should be in quotes from David Gusig. Uh, He's one of the commentators and pastors on Blue Letter Bible, which if you've never looked up Blue Letter Bible, do that fantastic tool to help you studying the Bible. Just jump on the internet, type Blue Letter Bible, look for David Gusig. But I, I just love the way that he puts that. That we rejoice more in what God has done for us than in what we have done for God. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Yes, there is joy in the ministry, but the greatest joy is what he has done for us, what we celebrated at this table this morning. And I'll just tell you, just from my own perspective, my own experience, it can be shockingly easy to, see, to let that slip, to go into something saying, Lord, this is all for you. You know, I'm volunteering today. I'm giving my time. I'm making this sacrifice because I know you've done that for me. And so I just pray that you would bless it. Amen. And then to drive home from whatever that thing is like, I did a great job today, <laughs> right? You know, and, and it just begins to slip in. And then what happens is we think, I've done so much for God, he, he kind of owes me. And we would never say that. It, it's usually when things start going wrong. Then we say, but Lord, I, I did all the things you said. I, I've been so obedient. Right? He wants us to remember our joy is not in these things. They, they bring joy, but our deepest joy It's not what we've done for him, it's what he's done for us. Because his disciples come back on this day saying, everything's working, it's going great. This spread the kingdom thing is going to be easy. Well, but he knows 
They are sheep among wolves. There is an enemy. They will suffer. They will take up their crosses to follow him. And if we always look at, is it working, as the proof of, does he love me? If that's what our life depends on, that joy will fall apart. But there's another side of that too that's almost just as easy to slip into, and I probably slip into this one more often if I'm just honest with you, that instead of thinking I've done so much I think he owes me, it's easy to think I've done so much wrong. How could he ever love me? I keep serving you, I keep volunteering, I keep doing these things, but what if it's not enough? That is a lie from the enemy. If that thought creeps into your head, if that thing ever triggers your anxiety, just listen to me. That is a lie from the enemy. Because when Jesus talks about names being written, he's talking about assurance. He's talking about confidence. Because it's not in me. It's in him. C.H. Spurgeon once wrote in one of his sermons that where the gospel is preached with divine power... Satan comes down from his throne in human hearts and human minds as rapidly as the lightning flashes from heaven. And when we see his kingdom shaken, then like Jesus, we rejoice in the spirit. When Satan's kingdom falls in the hearts and minds of people, then the kingdom of Jesus rises up in them. That is what we celebrate. That is where the ministry joy becomes our deepest joy because we see names written in heaven. And that verb, written, we've got to get this because this is beautiful. That verb has ongoing action that is essentially like timeline to timeline, beginning to end. Your names have been written, they are being written, and they will be written. That there is no moment in the stretch of eternity where Jesus does not say, if you are my follower, if you trust in me, if you are forgiven by me, your name is written. It is the blessed assurance that we sing about. It is the reason that we say my sins are nailed to the cross. It is the reason that we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. In fact, in the ancient Greek, this word would be used in very specific ways. One of those ways was for a formal will. Somebody dies, you inherit something from them because your name has been written in this will. Another one would be a marriage document. Let it be known these two people are now in a formal covenantal relationship for their names have been written in this marriage document. In other words, for citizenship, you are now officially a citizen of Rome for your name has been written. And even for a peace treaty. From here forth, these two parties shall no longer be in conflict, but they shall have unity and peace for their names have been written on this peace treaty. Those are some of the very specific ways that that would be used in the Greek language in these kinds of formal documents. Want some really good news? If you're a follower of Christ sitting here this morning, all of them are for you. When Jesus says your names have been written in heaven, he's talking about all of these. A formal will? Yes. Because your inheritance is not in this world. It is not in anything that can burn up or rust or be destroyed. Your inheritance is in Jesus Christ. And you are his inheritance because your name has been written. How about a marriage document? 
All throughout the Old Testament and right into the New, the people of God are described as his bride. Follower of Christ, you are the bride of Christ. You are in a covenantal relationship with the God who hung the stars because your name has been written. Citizenship? You better believe it. You're not a citizen here. Yeah, there might be a piece of paper somewhere that says, like, as long as you live here. But when you become a follower of Christ, when you put your trust in him as your forgiver and your Lord and your king, your permanent citizenship is in heaven, in the kingdom of God, because your name has been written. And it's a peace treaty. It's a peace treaty because while we were still sinners, when we were God's enemies because of our own ways that we like sheep would go astray, in his tender mercy and loving kindness, God said it was his pleasure. To sacrifice himself. To make peace with you. So that your name can be written. Ephesians 2.14 tells us of Jesus. He himself is our peace. That's how we rejoice. That's where our joy comes from. That no matter what else happens around us, he himself is our peace and he has written our names. In fact, this is so powerful to Jesus himself that verse 21 says, in that hour, means right at that moment, immediately he couldn't help it when he thought about the people in front of him who he loved so much that their names were written in his father's house. He was preparing a place for them and their names are on it and he knows when they're coming and he will bring them there. That Jesus himself rejoiced in the spirit. This is the only place the New Testament uses that phrase, that Jesus rejoiced. We know there are probably other places because of the reason it gives us here. He describes his joy for us in John 15 and tells us how we can share it. But in this moment... The emotions for Jesus overwhelm him and even Jesus rejoices in the spirit. Why? Because of you, son or daughter of God, follower of Christ, Jesus rejoices that your name is written in heaven. Let that sink in. Knowing that he's every moment, every day closer to the cross. This is the moment that makes Jesus think it is going to be totally worth it. Because you guys are having your names written in heaven. See, that's how we rejoice like Jesus. If we're going to rejoice like our life depends on it, it means that we rejoice like Jesus. That the thing that brings us the greatest joy is names written in heaven. Everything else can fall away. Everything here can disappear. Everything here can burn up. But that is the assurance that he gives to his people. 
You know, I was down at City Gospel Mission a few weeks ago uh, with the team from Horizon. And just as a perfect example of this, somebody from the team uh, leads devotions down there, and I got to sit in on one of them as they were just leading some of the guys through some scripture. And I went into the room thinking, it'll be cool to kind of just see how this goes. Of course, when somebody is just bringing the word of God and you're listening, <laughs> I didn't leave the room that way. <laughs> About two minutes in, it's like, oh, this is for my heart. This is so good. Just hearing these reminders, hearing these promises. But he gave the guys in the room an invitation that if they did not know Jesus as forgiver, now this could be a moment that they did that. And that night, as I was sitting in the back of that room, three guys did. Praise the Lord. But here's the thing. It's not three guys. Right? The exciting thing is not that we come back and say, you got three. Right? Jesus doesn't say, got 12. Hey, it's up to 70 now. I'm close to 100. This is going really good. Did you see this guy? We got three. Right? That's not really it. What it is is three names. Three individuals. Three people. I didn't get a chance to meet all three of them, but I met two of them, so I can tell you the name Raymond is written in heaven now. The name Sheldon is written in heaven now. That's what we celebrate when we do baptisms here at Horizon. Yeah, yeah, we need to know how many there are because we need to make sure that we have enough towels for all 17 people or whatever it is. But it's not the 17 that we celebrate. You see, that's the difference Jesus is giving him here. Jesus, we did all this stuff. That's great. Tell me the names. Jesus, we got all these people and we need more space and we got to expand in the building because so many people are bringing so many friends that we got to put them somewhere and we want to explore God together and it's going to be awesome and groups are expanding and it's going to be wonderful. And yes. Yes, that is awesome. Because he uses those things to advance his kingdom so that names of people are written in heaven. You know some names? About your name. Who are those people that you're praying for? Can you imagine the day their names are written? How you will rejoice like Jesus? Because he will too. In fact, those verses go on. The way that Jesus responded in joy was with a prayer of thanks. He says, I thank you, Father, because it's tender and personal. Lord of heaven and earth, because he's majestic and sovereign. That you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And there's something interesting here, because you've got to notice these three verbs. Because if this thing is so wonderful, so worth rejoicing, and then Jesus says, thank you, Lord, that you've hidden these things. Why would you hide it? But notice what else he says. The Father has hidden them and delivered them to the Son so that the Son can reveal them. So that the Son can reveal them. You see, God is saying, 
if you want to know what I'm like, talk to Jesus. The Greek culture that Jesus was in believed that God was unknowable. There's pockets of that in our culture, but but ours is a little different. For us, we think, well, you might know him this way, you might know him that way, you might not know him. There's really a lot of ways to God, and as long as you're picking one of them, then my job is just to not make you feel bad about it. But here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot miss this statement because this is strong. And, and look, I'm not saying this to be combative. I'm just saying this because it's what Jesus said. He does not give us the option that there is any other way to know God the Father except through the Son. And there's a skeptical part of us that says, well, how is that fair? I mean, that's so narrow-minded to say that it's only Jesus. Here's the thing, without Jesus, there is no way. It's not as if there were hundreds of ways and God decided not to use most of them and just do Jesus. It's that without Jesus, without what happened that we celebrate at this table, without that sacrifice, there is no way, but God loved us too much to leave it like that. He said, I'm going to make a way and I'm going to do it myself. You see... Jesus is not one of the options. Jesus is God himself saying, I want to write your name in heaven. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then in verse 23, Jesus wraps this time with his followers. Kind of this calm moment, this tender moment, after all that they've talked about, where he turns to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. He's thinking of kings like David who wrote in Psalm 69 of the suffering servant who would be the Savior. He's thinking of prophets like Isaiah who wrote in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant the Messiah, God himself, who was willing to take that pain for our peace. How they longed to see it, and the disciples are seeing it in the flesh. One of his disciples, Peter, would write later that you and I have something that even angels long to look into. Because at that moment, they had seen him heal and cast out demons, and they'd seen him teach. They'd heard things about his death, but it was still a mystery. You and I... We know of his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And we know he's coming back. We know he's coming back because he's promised to take us to the place that he's prepared for us because our names are written. So I'll ask you this question as we wrap up this morning. How will you rejoice? How do you rejoice? What does your life depend on? So I think our ability to maintain that joy no matter what we face. And listen, I know I'm teaching you this this morning, but it's not because it's easy for me. It's because he teaches me perseverance in this. Because it always comes back to what do you say about his name? And what does he say about yours? You know, this passage started with the disciples talking about his name. But it ends with him talking about theirs. If you don't know this morning, if your name is written in heaven, then this is an invitation for you. This is a moment that you could, for the first time, say, Jesus, 
I believe that you're the only way. I trust you as my forgiver, and I want to know you as my king. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to give you just a moment, quietly, that if you'd like to say that to him, would you just do that now? And then I'll close us. Lord Jesus, it is by your grace and for your glory that we sit here this morning. And so we thank you. We thank you that you love us so much that you rejoice over us. And Lord, I just pray that we would learn to rejoice the way that you do. And that our own joy, whatever we brought into this week and whatever we go into in the next week, that our joy would be built in you, that our names are written in heaven. We thank you for this Christ and for the sacrifice you made for us. Amen. Hey, let me just tell you, if, if you accepted that invitation this morning, if you said that for the first time, you have that assurance that your name is written in heaven. Maybe it wasn't this morning. Maybe you've done that sometime before. But if you have and you've never told anybody, would you tell somebody? Maybe the person you came with today. Maybe somebody that you know has been praying for you. Maybe just a random stranger here at Horizon. But tell somebody because we would love to rejoice with you even as heaven is rejoicing with you. And we'd love to see you back next week for more of the Gospel of Luke. Thank you for coming.